Hi, this is Tony Tolado, and this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, horror, fantasy, and comics help us explore our own humanity. This series of specials will look at the TV series Cosmos, as we always, like Luke Skywalker, like to stare into the sky. We'll have that starting in a moment. Let's begin with Season 1 of Cosmos at New York Comic Con. And it was hosted by the late Carl Sagan, an actual scientist who really, with his passion and enthusiasm, made the show interesting to me. And now it's actually coming back, hosted by a scientist that is for today, and that's Neil Tyson deGrasse. And actually one of the series' original producers, an Andrurian, has come back to work on the series, and they've added people like Brandon Braga, who of course is known for Star Trek, also as part of the mix. Seth MacFarlane actually championed this series and got it done. From the roundtables at New York Comic Con, here we have the interviews first starting us off with Neil Tyson deGrasse and Ann Durian, the widow of Carl Sagan and the series producer, and of course Neil is the host. I mean, one of the things I loved about the original Cosmos was, you know, the, 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 the trip through the, Alex, the library to Alexandria, things like that. What do you guys, I mean, now with all the special effects goodies that we have, what do you guys have planned for uh, this Cosmos? Well, so, uh, in the original Cosmos, we, we did a lot of homework studying what of the original Cosmos was more sort of endearing. What, what, what did people keep talking about long after they first saw it? Was it uh, Carl Sagan's delivery? Was it the... the, the the special effects of the day, something we can improve on? Was it a, a way of telling the story? Was it a tactic? And we call from that, like, we, what we think is the, the most potent ways of communicating. And then applied that to a whole other set of stories. And Anne came up and, and, and found them. I, I'm, I'm amazed. Every, every episode, 13 episodes, Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, every episode, there's a. You learn about scientists from history who, in some ways, were martyrs for what they knew was true, but faced cultural, political, religious, any kind of resistance. Yet they would strongly held to those understandings of the universe. And when you tell these stories, you realize that science is not just this subject from a textbook, <laughs> that it's a, it's a human story. Discovery is human. This doesn't happen all by itself. Somebody's got to go out there and, and, and be curious and ask the right questions and perform the right experiments and think in the right ways to understand how nature works. And that's what Cosmos is. It's a celebration of human curiosity and why that matters to who and what we are in this universe. Just to, to add to Neil's eloquent answer, um, yes, the ship of the imagination, as you know, and the cosmic calendar, but... Two things you, see, you saw in the, in the preview exactly, that was released that's, at the last con. Exactly. But we have something new, which, you know, as, as co-writer of the original series with Steve Soder and Carl, and as co-writer with Steve Soder of this series, um, we've come up with something that uh, that I think will really stick in the mind the way that the other two have. Very excited about 
uh, the way we're telling these stories, um, thanks to Seth MacFarlane, where uh, all right, you'll see for the first time uh, after, during the panel, you'll see the first completed animation sequence. It's only this is only the first half of it, the happy part, and um, but you'll get some sense of how we're doing this. And we also we have some tricks up our sleeves, some surprises. Uh, you know, for me, this began six years ago, and uh, really, in terms of writing it, three years ago, sitting in Ithaca, New York, with Steve, and since you know we were the surviving member of the original team, we have so the genetic link is there. Yeah, yeah we have yeah. Cosmos oh, yeah. and Carl mm -hmm. talking in our heads all the time. Not in a supernatural way, but just, you know. That's who you were talking to. Yes. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, but still, so, you know, we, for me, it's got to be, just as Carl did so brilliantly, it's always got to be the brain and the heart both working at full tilt. If you're watching it and you're not feeling it, not understanding it, God forbid, um, it's no good. And if you're understanding it, but it's not making you feel anything, it's no good. And that's why I think Cosmos stands out. It has its own untenanted ecological niche. No one has come along. They've done great science programming, but they haven't come along and done a Cosmos. And all I can tell you is that when, we, when I sit in the editing room, I'm thinking, this is Cosmos. What is the difference in doing this for Fox as opposed to a network like PBS? Well, it's only because of Neil <laughs> that the wonderful Seth MacFarlane came into our Cosmos lives. And he hooked us up, and Seth has been our champion. He brought us to Fox, and I was thinking, having been to the usual suspect networks that usually do this kind of stuff, and having worked with them in the past, I was thinking, well, this is where it should be. And I was really interested. They didn't want to give me creative control, and they didn't want to give me the kind of support that so that the These stories. Other networks, the other networks. Yeah, okay. those where they, where we could just really do a cosmos that would be a worthy successor of the original and be as cutting edge as it was for its time. Until Seth brought us to Peter Rice at Fox, and Kevin Riley, and Peter. Too high ranking. Uh, and. They were a little skeptical at first, as you would imagine. It's you know they didn't know if their audience would would, would be interested. And uh, Peter hadn't seen the original series. Went home, told his children, "We're going to watch a science series from 1980." And they were like, "No, please <laughs> run away! No!" <laughs> they got so into it that it was like he would talk to them from work, and they'd say. Daddy, can we watch Cosmos tonight? And that's when he knew that he wanted it on his network. And from that moment to this moment, you know, the, the standards and practices people who review every script, to last night I got, you know, their reaction to 10 of the 13 scripts, and, they, and just they haven't gotten to the other three yet. It was a, a writer's dream. Approved as submitted can't wait to see it can't wait to see it you know so i i can't tell you it's you know life is always like that it's never turns out the way you expect and fox has been magnificent and by the way just just to clarify to the 
what the, the liberal left you normally think of Fox. They no, think of Fox News no, and this sort the of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is of course the network, but more broadly, Fox as a as a construct yeah. out of News Corp includes you know 20th Century Fox, which yeah. brought Avatar to the screen. It's Fox Light Pictures, which brought Slumdog Millionaire to the screen. It's Fox Network. There's Fox Sports. There's Fox. This just goes on and on and it's on. It's the Simpsons and yeah, yeah. Guy. What's better than that? Yeah, yeah. So it's the it's the the acerbic liberal commentary that you get in in the Simpsons yeah. on Fox. Yeah. So uh, I think the the smartest person in the room then is Murdoch, who <laughs> says I will have tributaries into my portfolio of every demographic I can think of that's out there. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, we're all watching. We're all. To our misfortune. <laughs> no, we're all on one of those tributes. I watch Fox Sports. I, you know, we we loved many of the movies that have come through 20th Century Fox. That whole community, that whole media empire, yeah. is when Seth said maybe Fox will be interested. When he told that to me, I said for six seconds, I thought that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> of course, they're not going to do this. And then I thought. Wait a minute. Where does science need to be? Mm-hmm. It needs to be where most people cross roads. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any other place but Fox that has as many crossroads into it. Mm-hmm. And so at, at by the 12th second, mm-hmm. after the first six seconds, I said, this is the greatest idea I've ever heard mm-hmm. since sliced bread. And, Seth, and by Seth's brokerage, right, he brings us to his people. And Seth is, as we know, is a major uh, talent of the Fox community. So, uh, that, so that's his, that, that was his initial role in this. And then there's a more role. Oh, I mean, listen, the, the stories we tell wouldn't be animated. If it, exactly, you're so right. If it wasn't for Seth, uh, also there wouldn't be a ship of the imagination every episode, which was, uh, you know, he, I was like, you know, I like the ship, I like a little ship, but you know, I'm really not, I, I think it, I was actually sort of sensitized by the fact that when the reviews came out for the original series, we, they were scathing about the ship and, and really nasty. And so I was like, well, the ship, I don't know, you know, but. Um, just to remind you, the ship was a way for Carl Sagan to just get around. Otherwise, is he just floating in space, or did he just appear places, <laughs> right? So how does he how does he talk about and look at the surface of Venus unless he's in some kind of a vessel? So yeah. this was introduced in that, and so yeah, Anne is right. I remember seeing it myself, and I and I, I was like, Wait, where's that? Where, what, what's happening with this vessel? And but it got complete for this. It got completely reimagined, and it serves a lot of the same utility. <clears throat> it carries me around the universe on whim <coughs> just on whim uh, I just my next sentence is on the Big Bang that's where I am and it's happening you're thinking <coughs> it's an expression of my thoughts and there's no not, it's not let me grab this and go and maneuver this ship is is this is the flow of time and space in these 13 episodes and hence the subtitle a space time odyssey one of the things that was cool was uh, <clears throat> watching Alien Encounters that you were featured prominently in. 
And Carl's uh, son is in that Nick, too. My Nick, my boy, yeah. So I was Logan. watching that, and I was watching it. My wife, we were mesmerized by that, and we kept saying, <coughs> "Nailed it! He should get his own show, man." I mean, this <laughs> it was like every time he was on, I was like, we were riveted. And and like Carl, what you do is you make science fun for the masses, and that that is so key. I mean, you so you need true. that on this show. That's right. There were actually several other scientists who were lobbying for this gig and I knew it was Neil from the beginning for several reasons first his Neilitude which, <laughs> which is you know he's, he's not only a serious scientist he's also a communicator with a, without an any a scintilla of pretense snobbery or the desire to just impress people with what he knows. He's, you know, he has so much of what Carl had, plus his own thing. But the thing that really can persuaded me, besides the fact that nobody could do it as well as he, was the fact that I saw the series as a tribute to the continuity of minds that stretch back to antiquity forward to, to a healthy planet and the stars that we, if we if we get our act together and of course Carl reached out to Neil when he was a very young man in the Bronx and not yet an astrophysicist and not yet a household name and all those things and spent a day with him when you were 16, 17, yeah, 17, 17 years uh -huh. old so to yeah. me that was cosmos because that is the you know the human connection that says that the scientist and mentoring in science is, you know, there are many many mentorships in these stories we tell that are about those relationships, good and bad. But to me, uh, you know, the thing about science is that other ways of worshiping nature pride themselves on not changing. You know, they're the same as they were when we were an agricultural society, or the same as we were when you know we thought lightning was that the gods were angry but science is constantly changing and so no one generation ever gets to see the whole picture and it depends upon relationships both intellectual mentorships and just the emotional mentorship of you're going to be a scientist and i believe in you and you're going to do this to a future astrophysicist? Is that what it said? Is that what it said? To yeah, a future, future astronomer. Yeah, future yeah. Future astronomer. He signed a book for Neil. 17. 17. You know the coolest thing was? Well, I was in his office when he did this. And he just like reached back. Yeah, he didn't even have to look. Reached back and that was like one of his books. And I said, wow, that is cool. It's really beautiful. And so, you know, we always see the scientist as the maniacal uh, narcissistic uh, madman who's going, or woman who's going to destroy everything that we love. And making the case for science and making the case for its values is at the heart of this whole enterprise. Yeah, half of all dystopic fiction is, is scientists ruining, ruining, yep, the ruining world. everything. Well, it's, it's, it's partaking of the tree of the of the, uh, of the fruit of, of knowledge. That's the big thing that humans shouldn't do, but that's what makes us human.
you know, so it's a double bind, but anyway. Were you pulling Adam and Eve on that one? You were pulling the Garden of Eden in that, in that phrase. Very mm -hmm. like, no, don't learn that. It'll make up ruin everyone will die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thank you for listening to Sci-Fi Talk, but stick around. I have more. Let's get back to Sci-Fi Talk. I'm Tony Tolado. Now, this is always a challenge, continuing the legacy of the previous series without being overshadowed by it. But we, we grappled with that from the very beginning. And not that there was a single problem that we thought we had to solve. It was just, how are we going to think about this? All right? You're right. Is it a show so closely associated with Carl? In fact, the subtitle of the original show was called A Personal Journey. And voyage. so, a personal voyage. So, um, so I, I, Anne will have something else to say, perhaps different from what I will say, but here's my reply to that question. The, um, I have, I've had over these years that we've been working in the show and have had before that working up through it, a continually growing fan base from my other activities, the books, the, I, I hosted a Nova show, uh, the tweets, the Facebook. And so there's a community that when they see me in it, they'll think of me because that, that's what they're following me to the product. Okay. There's another community that has a deep and strong <clears throat> memory of Carl in the original show. Nothing, <clears throat> nothing to see me in that role. So I thought about it and I said, well, I could try to be Carl, but I'd fail at that. They said, oh, you're filling his shoes. No, no one can fill those shoes. But I have another pair of shoes that are there, and they're my shoes, right? I can fill my shoes, and I can be a really good version of myself. <laughs> I can an insanely great version of himself. <laughs> Nobody could do me better than me. No, and so, absolutely. I couldn't agree So at the end of the day, it was, is, is there a voice that, uh, in, in, in the writing and the delivery and in the framing, that can be mine while the full 13 episodes is clearly a, a remembers Carl. And we think, I think, I think we, we think we've accomplished that. You guys rock, man. Okay, guys. All right, thank you. Can't wait to see this. There's more of my look at Cosmos, which premieres on Fox. But on Premium Spotlight, we're introducing a new series called Directors. And here I'll have conversations with up-and-coming directors and also established directors as well. To kick off the series, a director we need to watch, Jim Mickle, whose movie Stakeland is actually going to be turned into a series. The second important film that he's done, We Are What We Are, is available on DVD as well. Let's listen a little bit to my conversation with Jim Mickle talking Stakeland. Now for this, what I, I really dug about this is that you made the vampires feral. Yeah. So you and your co-writer were sitting down. Who came up with the idea? Uh, that was Nick, I think, you know, I, I, I think we knew we'd done monsters before, you know, we wanted to do monsters again, you know, what's the way that we can do them again and sort of get to do the things we didn't get to do the first time. So, so that was Nick and I kept coming back and saying, you know, well, we really got to stick to vampire lore. And I think it was, it was really Nick saying like, why, who says, you know, we can, we can do our own thing, you know, and, uh, and they haven't been scary in a while. So let's make them scary. Yeah, it's almost like they're, you, you kind of borrow a little bit from the zombie culture and how to make them that way. Yeah. And their look, I mean, how did that process evolve? Yeah, well, I think I wanted to make very sure that we weren't 
zombies only because I think we were criticized the first time around for being kind of zombies but not zombies and and you know and I'm a fan and I you know I like the rules and, and don't want to break them and, and uh, so I think we really wanted to find a consistency and make sure that they weren't specifically zombies that being said I think we borrowed from it in that there's always a sense that there's characters in zombie movies and they're, you can see, tell by their costumes who they were and where they came from and I sort of like that because it feels like a lost humanity I guess in a way and, and so we were able to tie some of that stuff in but um, yeah I think you know we, we sort of went to Brian Spears the effects guy and said you know how do we make them not feel like that you know and, and sort of examining everything from vampires have two canine fangs you know what if it's the opposite what if they're lower you know what if everyone has different types of fangs you know what if it's a jaws sort of a shark bite you know so I think it was a lot of fun to just sort of say does it have to be that way just because it, it's been that way before <laughs> Now, the story itself, how did, uh, I mean, you brought in the Brethren and kind of like a, you know, a religious movement in there, too. How did that all come together for you? That was Nick originally, you know, it, it, it was all these webisodes, but it took place modern times, or modern day, and this was sort of like this vampire was like a hidden secret, you know, among us. And then once we sort of folded it all together, that became sort of the glue that stuck it together, was setting it in this post-apocalyptic world. So you had all these adventures of these two characters and the characters they meet, but you also had this sort of overarching evolution that they were going to experience, I guess. And... Um, so that came from him, and originally it started off, and I think it was a lot of different things, and it was kind of the clan, and it was, you know, small-mindedness, and it was small thing, you know, it was all these different things that came along, and at the time it was the election, you know, uh, 2008, you know, and and I was sort of fascinated by the idea that, you know, you have, whether it's religion or politics, you have people over here who believe one thing to the death, and you believe something, people over here believe one thing to the death, and they're fundamentally at odds with each other, yet they both know that they're right you know and, and only one of them can be right and probably none, none of them are you know but that idea sort of fascinated me I'd gone to to Israel a couple years before that and was sort of blown away by the old city in Jerusalem and the fact that you have the most fanatical people in the world who are all fundamentally at odds with each other yet somehow coexist and don't want to you know so I think that was sort of on the brain and um wanted to be able to explore that in film but if you were to make a film about that you know you're probably not going to get distribution <laughs> probably not going to get a lot of people to really care and so it you know it felt like a good way to drop vampires into that context i guess that's cool and and your casting a really good cast yeah, yeah. i mean how did some of these people like the kelly mcgillis's yeah, uh, fit yeah, yeah. come into it? just lists really you know um it wasn't the sort of thing where we could come back and say like you know, it was a small budget, you know, and so a lot of it was just begging actors to do it. It wasn't like you could, you know, pick a name out of it, you know, pick a name out of a movie and say, great, I want that person to be my movie. It was very much like, look, you know, you're asking people, we broke the, sh we took a three-month break in the middle of the shoot, so we were shooting in the fall and the winter time, so we were booking people for literally like six months that we only might use them for six days, you know, and no agent wants to hear that, and, and, and you're not paying a lot of money, and it's a lot of running around in the woods outside in the cold, you know, so everything about it was sort of miserable, but, you know, out of that, I think you find these people that are, they want to work, and, and, and like Connor, you know, he sat down and was like, you know, listen, I want to do this movie, I know this character, you know, I know how to do this, and, you know, I've, I don't get an opportunity to do these kind of things, and so... He pushed and fought for that. Sean Nelson pushed and fought. You know, he sent me a letter after we met, you know, and, and it just meant so much because he spent so much time chasing actors as a director to sort of have an actor actually turn turn around and say, like, hey, I really want to do your movie, you know, and, and send you something. Like, that just means so much. And yeah, and Kelly, you know, they uh, Kelly popped up on the list, and, and I thought this is the coolest idea, but this is the most unrealistic idea. And, and, 
I guess we should try it because it's so cool, but it's never going to happen. But at least you can kind of say like, hey, at least we tried with Kelly McGillis. And then next day she's signing on and, you know, I literally don't know how that happened <laughs> or why it happened. <laughs> and Danielle, I grew up sort of watching her on Roseanne and watching her grow up as like a child actor and... and um, and at some point, I sort of went like, "Where's that girl?" You know, used to see all these movies that I really loved, and I, I actually didn't even realize she was like a horror icon or a scream queen. And then I wound up doing a Fangoria radio show with her, and I was like, "There's that, there's Danielle," you know. So, um, and that was right when we were trying to cast a part, and it just, you know, those little fate organic things I think are, are interesting. You know, there is much more of this series, plus over 400 different podcasts available on Sci-Fi Talk Premium. Visit scifitalk.com, click on the premium link on the top, and once you get to the premium page, then click on the Get Premium Access to get started. And once you've created the MyLibsyn account, you can choose a subscription level that's right for you. But there are deeper discounts the longer you get. So I certainly urge you to get six months or a year and you'll save more money. And then you'll be able to listen to premium content as long as you're logged in, right from my premium page, your iOS app, or Android app. One subscription lets you log in and gain access to all three in just those easy steps. And Cosmos has a great team behind them, including executive producers Brandon Braga and Mitchell Canold. Uh, I was a fan of the original as well. I watched it in high school and it had a profound impact on my life. It's one of the reasons I got involved in science fiction, luck, luck, lucked out to get in involved in science fiction writing was my interest in science first and foremost so I just got a call out of the blue by Seth McFarlane who's a friend we've never worked together and he said that they needed some help over on Cosmos and I, and I knew he I had a, I knew he was involved with it I kind of like compartmentalized information because I was so jealous uh, so I jumped at the chance and is it a year and a half later? Uh, a year and a half after meeting Andrew Yen and Mitch and Neil here in New York. We're in post-production on the show with two days left of shooting. And it's been an amazing experience. And it's, uh, you know, my fiction sensibilities probably have helped a little, to some small degree in creating visually interesting sequences and taking scientific concepts and making them narratively propulsive, but it's mainly Anne wrote the scripts, you know. I, I just was here to help. Mitch, how'd you get involved in this? I've met a lot of people in film and television. He's the most humble one I've ever met. Um, <laughs> it's phony humility. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really an arrogant. Uh, you know, I was as a kid at eight years old, my mother and father took me to the Hayden and I saw this Isaac on projector and I went, whoa. There's something interesting there. And so while most of my career has been as a journalist and then producer and then an executive of media companies, um, it was, this has always been a hobby of mine. Um, I had the good fortune to meet Dr. Sagan and, and Annie um, when I was running new businesses at Sony Corporation in 1993. And I reached out to them through a mutual friend of ours, uh, produced Contact, the movie with them, and invited Carl and Ann to write an IMAX movie of their choice, which is one of the businesses I had. And they, they started that when, when Carl became ill. So my wife and I and, and Carl and Ann became close friends. And, and um, then about seven years ago, um, apart from my private equity and media life, talked about 
whether it might be time to do a new series and whether the circumstances were such that it could be done in a way that um, could be a worthy successor. Um, to Anne's, singularly Anne's, great credit, um, we respectfully declined uh, 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 compelling offers from three other networks, cable, um, because they didn't provide the financial resources or the control over the content that she felt was necessary in order to risk the, the brand and the legacy and Dr. Sagan's work. And then um, we met Seth, and uh, Neil met Seth, as he may have told you that story. And um, uh, for those who underestimate Seth, don't. Um, he's a brilliant science fellow, and he read all of their work, Carl and Anne's, and he became our godfather at Fox, as you may have heard from them. And as, among other important contributions, then introduced us to Brandon, as he said, that um, and Brandon has really infused the entire series with um, all the kind of values and entertainment um, uh, value that, that you know in his other important work. Is this a good time to bring Cosmos back? When, when isn't it a good time to bring Cosmos back? There are always dark forces of irrational thinking in the world, and uh, this, is, this is the combat. This is, this is science saying, I'm relevant. Reality is relevant. Nature is relevant. A believable a view of the world that is real is, is relevant. And science doesn't have to be the opposite of religion in terms of its emotional value. And that is what Cosmos brings that no other science show I think has ever got quite right, which is science can move you like any any other story and science can be a visceral emotional experience that to me was the, was the number one thing that struck me when i saw the original the, the, the awe and a religion doesn't own awe and, and mystery science does it better i'm rambling now no These you're not and, and i'm not following that one <laughs> <laughs> and has today's political environment affected the series I don't think it has at all. It has at all. It has because the subject matter is reality, and our understanding of it, our place in the universe, and how we came to know our place in the universe, it's is not influenced by politics. I mean, it's not. That's just not what it's about. It's it's just those things have no place in you know. The, the, these are facts. The things that are in cosmos are real. So. If there, if there's just you've mentioned politics and what else? Uh, the political and, and just cultural and Col culturally, culture. The only thing culturally that maybe is relevant is politics. Forget about it. I mean, there are pol there are political aspects to some of the stories we're telling about scientists who struggled to bring their ideas to light. There, as as you know, there are some politics involved in that. Culturally, we're hoping. Time is. This will be a welcoming time for a show like this. I think this whole this whole phenomenon is promising. You know, people like genre television has exploded. Science shows. I mean, really, I think if you actually could monitor people's televisions, the History Channel would be right up there at the top. I mean, people are thinking. They seem to be thinking a little bit differently now. That they have options. 
on saving. See, as I told you. (laughs) Um, I would also tell you we have a couple of other champions at Fox in Peter Rice, who's chairman, and Kevin Riley, who's president, who um, gave us uh, freedom, complete freedom. So the first reaction people say is Cosmos, Fox. Um, Of course, they don't distinguish between Fox News, which obviously has a perspective on the world, and Fox Television, which, among other things, can take credit for Family Guy and Simpsons and, you know, and and 24. uh, so we had the freedom to do this as we thought best, and they respected Carl's legacy, what Carl and Ed had done before, and of course, since they know uh, Brandon as a uh, trusted leader, um, it, 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 they, we, they gave us the respect that we needed to have to do it. Otherwise, we could have done it for the other networks that thought they knew better. And they really have given us an amazing latitude to do the show, and the financial resources as well. And this is a very ambitious 13 episodes. Also remember, the original series is on the air somewhere in the world tonight, a lot of places, 34 years later. There's not a lot of media in any platform that can say that um, for the original series. Um, And so the bar was set awfully high. Um, From our point of view here, we have to create something that has that real everlasting value um, in terms of the stories we tell. So, um, you know, we're doing this a lot... uh, for our kids and grandkids, um, as well as for the current audience. You mentioned, uh, uh, you know, as what science, what science uh, has done, and and, and play, you know, con- conventions like this. Star Trek certainly changed, and the shows you worked on, even going back to Gene Roddenberry, people's concept of science, it really helped boost it. Oh yeah, so Star Trek is. It really is kind of what you might call at its at its best hard science fiction. It, it was sort of it's not fantasy. It's about people with technology. I don't know superpowers or any supernatural components to it. And yet it was incredible. It was a lot of fun. And it was about discovery and mystery and and what's out there. And, and the spirit of that, that kind of pioneering spirit is no different here. Same 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 idea. This season has a, a starship. In it. If you've seen the trailer, it has a spaceship. A pretty cool one. And I always credit you because you never, your stories, especially the, the stories you wrote in relation to time, were never done to the audience. I mean, it really forced the audience to, to think a little bit about our relationship with time and the and also our actions and how it influence what happens in the future or the past. So. Any time travel in this one will have to be real time travel. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ian and, and uh, her, her other writing partner, Dr. Stephen Soder, on the original, um, wrote the original treatment. And um, uh, that's what was presented to other networks, all of which said yes. Um, just not quite big enough and with enough deference to their ability to really execute. And so what ultimately has been produced um, is very faithful to that. Faithful conceptually, as Brandon said, the original. You know, without it's my understanding. I wasn't there at that time. That there were certain potential broadcasters who wanted to literalize the format. You know, Cosmos is like the original, so wonderful because you never quite know where it's going. It's this kind of labyrinth of concepts that cohere into something greater at the end. And some people, some executives, aren't comfortable. You want to know what if, what's this yeah. one about? Like I, I need to know, and you need to yeah. restate it, and it needs to be. And that's and and you know, Andrian is fiercely protective of, of the, the 
the original vision of the show, which remains unique to this day, and this the show will retain that that quality. Ultimately, it's like what you said about his work, yeah. that it respects the intelligence of the audience, that they don't have to have be told, this is what we're going to tell you, then we'll tell you, then we'll tell you what you, we told you. Terrified that this, <laughs> this is all going to work and be worthy of the original, you know, we're still making it. What's neat is, you, with Neil and with Carl, they, they both make science fun, and that's very appealing to the masses. To have that book, I think it's going to be a, the recipe for success for your show. So. Thank you. Special thanks to Fox and New York Comic Con 